Welcome to Austin Chapel. My name is Stephen Montgomery, the lead pastor here. I'm so glad that everybody is here today. We are going to be continuing in the book of Esther. We're actually going to be wrapping it up. I'm a little bit sad about that, but we got great things coming. Um, some ex- other s- series I'm excited about, but we're going to be wrapping up these last three chapters of the book of Esther today. Esther has been a book that really is all about the providence of God. When we talk about the providence of God, what we mean by that is that God, throughout all situations and places, has his kind of sovereign hand over it, where he is taking care of his people. And that's hard to believe sometimes. You get in certain situations, um, if you're like me, and you kind of wonder, God, what are you doing right here? Are you working? What's going on? I'm confused. I don't see how your, your love is being played out here. I don't see how your will is going to work out here. I don't see how this is going to turn out for good. Does anybody relate with that? <laughs> anybody? Any time, right? We, we do that, right? We get in a hard situation. We get in a tough situation, and then we question God's sovereign hand. We question what's going on. Don't we do that? Well, the book of Esther is a book that does not mention the name of God. No one in the book prays. No one in the book prophesies. There really is no spirituality going on in the book. But the Jews absolutely love the book of Esther. You have the Torah, which is the first, really, five books of the Bible. We call them the Pentateuch as well. Those first five books of the Bible are the most read by uh, Jewish people. Do you know what the second most read book is? The book of Esther. The Jews love the book of Esther because the book of Esther, though it does not mention God, no one prays, no one prophesies, there's very little spiritual things going on. They say that this book really shows that God's hand is in every situation, whether or not people pray or prophesy, whether or not people recognize that God is there, whether or not these people are in Jerusalem, God's hand is at work. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm spiritually distant, or sometimes you're in a situation where you're not sure where God is. It's good to remind ourselves, no, God is here right now. He works all things for good for those um, who love Him. And for those who he loves. So it's a good book to read. The Jews love this book. It was a book that was misunderstood in, in the um, kind of Reformation area during the church. You know, famously, John Calvin said that, um, well, John Calvin didn't even write a commentary on it. It was the only book of the Bible he didn't write a commentary on. Luther said that he wished the book had never been written and wasn't included in the canon. It was a book that was misunderstood because it looked like at first glance, a Persian soap opera that had nothing to do with God. But when you really dig into it, we see that God's hand is all over this book. If you look at the original language, there are acrostics in the verses that show the name of Yahweh. It's pretty powerful, and they happen at key points in the story. You'll see a little acrostic, and those who would kind of... The scribes, as they're writing, they would darken even these letters to show that he was there behind the scenes. And so it's a book that I believe is a powerful one and I believe we can learn a lot from. So let's just catch everybody up really briefly. I've done this each time and hopefully for some of you who've been here every week, it's not annoying. But we have some who maybe haven't heard kind of where we're at in this story. They haven't been here for some of the other messages. So we'll just briefly um, catch us up. 
Esther takes place after the Jews have been freed from captivity. They were taken captive by the Babylonians. The Persians overthrew the Babylonians. They really took over the world, you could say the Persians did. And they freed the Jews, even allowing them to go and build, rebuild their city, build the temple, and start building a wall. And so Esther takes place during this time. And many of the Jews remained in the places in which they were taken captive and brought to. So they have a lot of Jews that live out really in different Persian cities and, and are dispersed far from Jerusalem. And so this story takes place in Susa, the capital. And we see this guy, Ashurarius. It's easier to say Xerxes. Historically, he's remembered as Xerxes. Uh, um, one of his names is Ashurarius, um, which is what we see in scriptures. But I like to call him Xerxes because it's easier to say. Every time I say Ashurarius, I feel like I'm stumbling <laughs> my mouth. So the King Xerxes is this guy who wants to be seen as God. He has people worship him as God. He parties and parties. And, and basically, they're just really a nation that's full of debauchery. Um, they're full of immorality. They're full of idolatry. And he's this very prideful, arrogant king who is basically running the entire world, at least what was known as the world at that time. Now, during this crazy party they were having, his wife refuses to come out and kind of flaunt her body for him and his drunk friends. And so in that process, they end up really encouraging him to divorce his wife because she's encouraging other women to be disobedient to their husbands. And what we find out also is that there's this girl named Esther, this young woman named Esther, who's been adopted by um, a relative named Mordecai because her parents are dead. So we see these few main characters. We've got King Xerxes, we have Esther, and we have um, Uncle Mordecai, you could call him. And she is apparently very beautiful, and the king is looking for a new wife, and she is picked as the new queen. And Mordecai has told Esther to keep her identity a secret. And so she plays along with this. They don't reveal that they're Jewish, and then she becomes queen. And then we've got this guy, Haman, right? So these are our four main characters, Xerxes, um, we have Esther, we have Mordecai, and we have Haman. Haman is an Agagite as far back as they can remember. They've hated Jews, and Jews have hated them. And they really are this two people groups that have been really at tension for centuries. And he hates Mordecai for two reasons. One, he's a Jew, so there's a racial sort of hatred there. But second, Mordecai refused to show him respect. Haman was promoted to really, you could say it's almost like a prime minister sort of position. He was second in charge. And he was probably doing a lot of the practical parts of leading their government. While King Ashurarius, King Xerxes was stepped back, probably just more enjoying life and occasionally getting involved in the things he needed to do. But he had Haman kind of as his right-hand guy to take care of everything. So what would have been proper is, since this guy's basically running the country, it would be proper to just bow to him out of respect. And Mordecai refused to do this. So Haman hates him because he won't show him respect, and he hates him because he's a Jew. So Haman devises a plot to trick the king into wiping the Jews off the face of the planet. Right? It's pretty extreme. He says, I'm going to go ahead and instead of just killing Mordecai, I want all the Jews gone. And so Haman had said to the king, there is a certain people, right? He runs the whole world. What's a certain people to mean to him? It can mean anybody, anyone. There are certain people who they don't obey our rules. They, they're disrespectful. They're disobedient. They cause problems. 
Let, let me just wipe them out, and we'll get all their treasure in gold, and I'll, I'll deposit it into the king's um, treasury. So it's like, the king's like, all right, we, we get rid of this kind of unruly people, and we get a bunch of money from it. Sounds great, right? And on top of that, Haman had also done this thing where they cast a bunch of lots for every day of the year. And they were very into these kind of mysticism ways of getting answers from their gods. Um, and so he casts all these lots, and they find the perfect day of the year to do this, the one that maybe the gods had approved of. So he comes before Xerxes, and he says, Hey, look, we've got uh, the gods on our sides. We know which day we should do it, and we can get rid of these disobedient people, disrespectful people, and we'll get a bunch of money out of it. So Xerxes goes along with this idea. Well, his wife is what? A Jew. But she's kept that a secret. And Mordecai is also a Jew. And Mordecai had saved the king's life at one point. So you have Mordecai, who is this man who is actually to be respected and honored. You have Esther, his queen, and yet they're Jews. And he has just signed this thing with his, he sealed it with his ring, that the Jews are to be wiped off the face of the planet a few months from now. And so Esther, as we talked about last week, she really brings a, she has this idea to bring the king and Haman to a little party for just them. She kind of wins the king's favor. And then she throws another party. And as the king is just so overwhelmed with these dinner parties that she's throwing, he's like, what do you want? What, do you, what is it that you request? And she says, this Haman has plotted to kill me and my people. And I want you to do something about it. And so we see that Haman was hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai to be killed on. And that's where we left it last week. Haman is hung instead of Mordecai. And now we're going to see how is Esther going to actually save the people. We're going to start in verse um, 1 of chapter 8. On that day, King Ashuarius gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told um, what he was to her. So Haman's house, he had a special place in the palace probably. He gives this to Esther. And then Esther says, hey, Mordecai is actually my uncle. Um, and the king knew Mordecai as someone who at one point saved his life. We'll continue, continue reading here. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Haman is actually promoted now to Haman. Sorry, Mordecai is promoted to Haman's position as second in command over the entire country. So Haman takes Mordecai's place on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And instead now Mordecai gets Haman's job. Things have really turned... Um, haven't they, since what we had read a few chapters ago. But, as we talked before, when a king in the Persian culture would decree something, or sign off on something, it could not be revoked, because they were believed to have been divine. So if you're divine, if you're a god, what does that mean? It means you can't make mistakes. And so he can't revoke his law, because that's not allowed, because he's a god and he can't be wrong. Verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet 
and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing to his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the, son, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ashwar said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For the edict written in the name of the king and, in, and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So what he says is, I cannot revoke the decree that has already been made, but I'm going to allow you to write up a new decree that will help save the Jews, but I can't undo this one. So you need to come up with a new plan that will save the Jews, and I will sign off on that that doesn't override this one. Sounds like we're getting into some politics, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, So they start writing something up here. We'll see in verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to all the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ashuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, to plunder their goods on one day through all the provinces of King Ashuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree to every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Okay, a lot just happened there. There's a lot of words, right? So what they write up is really a decree saying that the Jews can arm themselves and kill anybody who attacks them and take their goods instead. So it's basically like instead of them going around and just annihilating the Jews off the face of the planet, he said, if anybody wants to kill the Jews, we're going to let the Jews fight back. And whoever wins, wins, right? Whoever wins gets to take each other's goods, essentially. And then... It's interesting here, it says that they use the royal, really, um, horses to get this news out there as fast 
as possible. They want to get this news out there as fast as possible. Even though they have a few months before that certain day, they want to let everyone know, get ready. People are going to attack you, but I want you to arm yourselves and kill anyone who has the intent of killing you. So this is the plan that they do. So the king cannot revoke his original decree, but he can let out this new one that allows the Jews to defend themselves. Verse 15, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in his royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and holiday. And many from the peoples of the countries declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So, what we see here is that Mordecai is really just continuing to be promoted. Now he's getting special robes and everything like that. He's becoming more and more well-known throughout all, this, all of the land. And the Jews are relieved, right? They had just received a letter not long ago saying that they were going to be wiped off the face of the planet. And now... They receive a letter saying they can defend themselves and anybody who attacks them, they can actually kill them and take their goods instead. So they're happy with this good news. And so let's see how this all plays out. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king um, of King Asherah to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents who also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also Parshadatha and Dolphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Ardatha and Parmstatha and Arasai and Ardai and Vezatha and the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. Try to say that ten times fast. <laughs> Those were the ten sons of Haman. These are apparently their names. Um, if you're pregnant, <laughs> you know, you want some baby names, here's some great ones. So what happens is really the reverse occurred. They go out to kill all of them, and what happens instead is the Jews kill those who attack them. Um, and it turns out not many actually attacked the Jews because they were actually scared of Mordecai. Because even if they succeeded, what would Mordecai maybe do to them afterwards? Um, but it says that they laid no hand on the plunder. So they were allowed to take their goods and everything, but the Jews decided to not lay hand on any of the plunder, which is interesting. 
Let's continue reading here. That very day, the number of those killed in suit of the citadel was reported to the king. And the queen said to Esther, in suit of the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So they know at least five hundred men were killed in their own city. He's like, I don't know what the numbers are yet throughout the whole land, but we know at least five hundred um, attacked, and, but they were all killed. Not only that, we also know that the ten sons of Haman were all killed also. What do you want to do? And she said, well... I want you to allow there to be a day of defense tomorrow as well. She probably was worried that there were some who would maybe attack the next day. And so she said, allow there to be a allowed day of defense tomorrow. And let's hang Haman's ten sons. Even though they're dead, let's go and hang them um, next, to her, next to their father. And so that's what they do. We'll continue reading here. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. For this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and arrested on the 15th day making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who were in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts and of food to one another. So, the first day throughout all the land, they, they attacked. There was about 75,000 attacked. All of them were killed, and the Jews the next day really create a holiday in which they celebrate their salvation from this wicked Haman and the plot to destroy them. Let's continue reading here in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews. This is why right here a lot of people believe that Mordecai wrote the book of Esther, even though there is no um, really sign-off on it. A lot of people believe Mordecai wrote the book. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of the of King Ashwares, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that they had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So Mordecai really makes the day an official holiday. And we'll talk about that holiday here in a minute. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written for them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, 
He gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and the sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called this day Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and, what, and of what they have faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, in every province and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So this is really explaining why this is such a big holiday to the Jews. Even today they celebrate it. Even Jesus celebrated it in the Gospels. It's a very important holiday. Every year they would read the book of Esther um, in a large gathering, and they would give gifts to each other and everything. It's a big deal for them. We'll talk more about that as well. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all Jews to the 127 provinces, the kingdom of Ashwares, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the feast and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim. And it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10, And King Asherah imposed a tax on the land and the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Asherah, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all people. That's the end of the book of Esther. So what happens is they are freed, they were allowed to defend themselves, though they chose not to kill the women or children, they chose not to take their plunder, they just simply defended themselves. And now they have this holiday that comes out of it where every year they get to celebrate the salvation of the Jews. They get to celebrate God's providence and they name the holiday after casting lots. You see, Haman had cast lots to devise a plan against the Jews. But what happened on that day is instead the Jews became even more powerful in the land. You see, something that seemed as a horrible and awful thing a, a attack against them, God used for what? Their good. And the Jews celebrate this, that God is working even in the darkest, most terrifying situation. God works a way out to bring it for His glory and for His people's good. Isn't that amazing? And so it's an important holiday to the Jews. You know... There's a story, um, as Hitler was beginning to devise his plans against the Jews, they were bringing in different officials in Germany and everything. And a guy was brought in who apparently was a Jew, though they did not know it. 
And as they were talking about exterminating the Jews, apparently this man started laughing hysterically. And he said, when Egypt attacked us and tried to kill us, we got Passover. When Esther um, saved the Jews and Haman tried to annihilate us, we got Purim. And when the, I believe it was the Greeks attacked us, we, we got Hanukkah. He's like, I just wonder what holiday we'll get out of this one. The confidence of the man that God would take care of his people no matter what. doesn't matter who attacked him. And, and you know what came out of Hitler attacking the Jews? The Jews were given back their own land. Up until this point, the Jews were dispersed throughout the entire earth without a homeland, without a country of their own. And Hitler attacks them, trying to wipe them off the face of the planet. And God's sovereign hand uses that to bring about Israel once again. Which, by the way, is prophecy for the end time. So, yes, I don't know when God is returning. I don't know when Jesus is returning. But let me tell you, it's a lot closer than it was 100 years ago. (laughs) And we know that to be true because it's a part of the end time prophecy that the Jews would be restored to their homeland and be given as a, as a country once again. And so it's a pretty amazing thing how God has taken care of the Jewish people throughout all time. In Genesis 12, 1-3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, the promised land it is, and I will make... Of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord said to Abraham, Anybody who blesses you, I will bless. Anybody who curses you, attacks you, I will curse. This has been true. For thousands of years now, every time a nation arises against the Jewish people, that nation ends up falling. And those people end up being the ones who are cursed, not the Jews. And and we see that those nations and, and people that bless the Jews are in return blessed by God. This has been true. You can look at history and you will never find anything different than that. Because God promised it. And God keeps his word. I don't know about you, but that is so refreshing that God keeps his word. Because we oftentimes don't. Right? Don't you have people in your life that have promised things to you and then then it never happens? God is unlike us. When he says he's going to do something, what does he do? He does it. When he promises something... He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. That's the type of God we worship. And if you look historically, when people believe in his promises, they see the fruit of it. Every time, because God keeps his promises. There are a few things I want to point out from this last couple chapters we read. The first is that Esther and Mordecai could have kept their identities hidden and just ran off. But they didn't do that. Now, they at one point were ashamed of who they were. There was maybe a certain social um, 
reasons why they may have done that. Maybe some of the Persians didn't like Jewish people because they had different holidays, they had different uh, religious laws, they probably didn't participate in a lot of the debauchery that maybe the Persians were so fond of. There may have been social reasons why they kept it a secret. They were just kind of ashamed, um, Mordecai especially. But when it came time, when it came down to the line, and something needed to be done, instead of running off, instead of trying to keep it a secret, they stood up. And it says here that Esther, what she pleaded with the king on behalf of her people. And as I read that, I, I, I thought, Lord, who am I pleading for, or what am I pleading for? What do I find so important that I, I, I go maybe before God and I just plead? I want to see this happen. I, I need to see this happen. Please do this. And it just makes me think like we should really take a look at our prayer lives and see what's really important to us, shouldn't we? Because I think what we pray for says a lot about who we are. And maybe you've been caught up with your own thing for a long time. And maybe you're not that bold or, or you're not that excited about Christianity. But you know what's encouraging? Is maybe you've been ashamed in the past, but it's not too late. You can stand up and be bold today. And they did that. Mordecai had his flaws. Like I've talked a lot about his flaws. But when the time came, he stood up for his people. And God used him in great ways. Be put at... The second in command, similar to Joseph in Egypt and, and, and Daniel in Babylon. Mordecai is brought to second in command in Persia. And God uses them in incredible ways. It's a powerful thing. So I would encourage you to look at your prayer life and see what you're actually praying about. What are those things that you plead to the Lord with? And secondly, if you've been maybe ashamed for cultural reasons, maybe you just need to be encouraged that God still wants to use you. He wants to use you. I mean, I certainly have had times where I just don't feel like telling that group of people I'm a Christian. I really feel like evangelizing to that group of people. Uh, or... It just feels awkward to bring it up in that situation, right? You ever, you ever feel that? But it's not too late. Today you can stand up and be bold. Today you can, um, today you can, sorry. <laughs> today you can change that. Today you can be bold. So what I love about it is to see the transition of Mordecai. The other thing, and what I believe to be really powerful is that there was two laws decreed, and the first one could not be revoked, but the first one overpowered it. The first one was a law of death, and the second one was what? A law of freedom. And there's a powerful similarity to what we see in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God decreed a law that will not be revoked. And that is that the penalty for sin is death. That will not be revoked. That is not going anywhere. 
The penalty for sin is death. But do you know what he did? He decreed a second one that overrides it. He sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but what have eternal life. He sent his own son to take that penalty. On the cross, Jesus took our sins and he took the punishment for them. The second decree is, a one, is one of freedom and life. I think it's a beautiful picture here of what we have in the gospel, what we have in the cross. And as believers now, because of the work of Christ, we can know this. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And this is where the same chapter where Paul talks about how there are sheep regarded to be slaughtered and that they will be attacked and persecuted and killed and slandered and lied about and all these things. He says, no, 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 but listen, listen. That God works all these things out for our good. We struggle to believe that a lot of times, don't we? That's why the Jews love the holiday of Purim so much. Because they remind themselves that even in the worst circumstances, God is working things out for their good. And ultimately, we have to trust in that because Jesus came and died on a cross to prove that to us. That no matter what happens, He's working things out for our good and for His glory. And that was a powerful thing. You know, lately, I've probably said this before, but I feel this, this especially in the last week, I'm just reminded that the most important part of everything we do and everything we believe is just the simple aspect of the gospel. We get caught up in church methodology, and we get caught up in you know, secondary doctrines, and we get caught up with everyday practical things going on in our lives, and we just kind of put the gospel on this back burner. And it is where all life True life comes from. It is where all true freedom comes from. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so sweet and it's so good and it's the most important thing. And at the end of the day, if it's the only thing I can preach about, it will be. You know, I can't get up here any time and not just talk about the goodness of the gospel, how sweet it is, how powerful it is, how amazing Jesus is, that he loved me. A sinner, he loved you, a sinner who was undeserving, unworthy, and he died and took my penalty for sin. So that I could have freedom and righteousness. None of which I deserve. It's the goodness of the gospel, you guys. Sometimes I wonder how I can talk about anything else. But we often talk about everything else instead of it. We really believe it is the best thing ever. We need to start sharing. It says that when they got this second decree, they got the fastest horses in all the land and got it to go out as far as they could, as quick as they could. That was the response to the good news. Jesus said, what? Go out into all the world. This is the Great Commission. And the gospel has spread throughout all the world, but it's not done yet. 
There are still people throughout all the world that have not heard it. There are still people that you know that have not maybe been explained, have it explained to them in a way that really connects for them. You know, many people have heard of Jesus. Many people have heard of church. But few have truly been told how good it is. They have misconceptions about what the gospel is. Yeah, they've heard it or this or that, but have they really been told, listen, Jesus loves you so much. You're not saved by how good you are. Most people just think you get to heaven by being 51% good or better. Right? Because the church has communicated that, maybe not verbally at times, but in our actions with what we seem to care about, just make people good. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't, hey, get people to be more good than bad. The gospel isn't morality. Those things are important. And of course we want to see people live good lives. We want to see them transform, to refuse sin, to choose the good works that God has for them. But that is not how they get saved, and that is not the gospel. That is just morality. And morality doesn't save anybody. Because God said that they had to be 100% good, and no one is. God said that if one sin occurs in your life, you are deserving of eternal damnation. So it's not about going out there and getting people to live good lives. It's about going out there and telling them how much Jesus loves them. Are you with me? Why do we plant this church? Why do we do what we do, right? We go through our ups and downs on Sundays, and we have community groups, and they have their ups and downs too, and, and we do all the things for church, and then we have to step back and go, okay, why are we doing this all, though? And if we can't answer that question correctly, then we shouldn't do it. You guys, the only thing that really matters at the end of the day is, do people know Jesus? Are they in relationship with Him? Are we getting the good news out there? At the end of the day, it won't matter how many Christians we gathered in a room. about whether or not people were truly in relationship with God. If it's just about numbers, we'll just go to a show tonight, right? There'll be more numbers there. <laughs> you know, if it's just about numbers. You know, something else has to really stir up in us to remind us why in the world would we plant a church? It's not a, we don't plant a church to be competitive with the church down the street. When we see a church that's doing well, and we should be thankful to God for them. There's not a single church in this city that is our competitor. We're on the same mission, hopefully, as we are. And church, I just want to tell you, I understand the shame sometimes of saying you're a Christian. I understand the fear of sharing. Trust me, I, I totally get it, <laughs> right? Because I'm human too. I believe it was last week, I don't remember. Maybe it was the week before. Uh, we talked about how we view people differently through the lens of the gospel, don't we? They're no longer this person, maybe a person that you like or dislike, 
doesn't matter. They're a person who God loves and died for. How can we not tell them that? How can we not express that love to them? This is the only thing that in the end of the day really matters. Yes, I'm, being a, I'm, a, I'm exaggerating a bit, right? Obviously, there are other things that matter. When we come here and we gather together and we sing worship songs to God, that matters because we're giving God glory. It's important. When we reverently read the scriptures and respect God's word and we learn from them and we grow, that matters. It does. Trust me, I am all for all of those things. When we gather into community and pray for each other and we see healing That matters. God gets glory. These things are important. But when we talk about why we plant a church, there's one thing that has to matter more than everything. And it's, do people know Jesus? Do people know Jesus? We know that Austin is a dark city. We know that Austin is a city that is far from God. We all know that, don't we? And it sometimes makes church planning difficult. The downtown areas, like there are many church planners outside of Austin that say like certain zip codes in Austin are where churches go to die. <laughs> because there have been so many failed church plants in central Austin. Like I personally know of about eight. Come and gone. It is a hard city and it is rough Soil, but do you know what that means? It's because there's a lot of people here that need Jesus. It's not hard to plant a church here because there's so many churches. The percentages in Austin are actually extremely low in the amount of Christians and amount of churches compared to the rest of Texas and even most of the rest of the country. Austin is a city without enough churches. Austin is a city with a lot of people who desperately need Jesus. And that's why we're here, church. I did not plant this church because I wanted to compete with other churches. I did not plant this church because I like standing up here and having people watch me. Some weeks, I'm, I, trust me, I, there's, other, there's weeks where I just would rather have other people preach. Trust me, I work full time. Preaching is not easy to do. Sundays are my hardest day. Like, I work long days painting, but Sunday is always harder. It takes a lot out of me to, to, to do this. But listen, I'm not doing this for an event, and I'm not doing this to compete with any churches. I'm doing this because truly I want to see people come to know Jesus. And there are people I have witnessed to multiple times, and they still won't respond. There are people I have invited and invited, and they still won't come to church. But you know what? I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep sharing the gospel with my barber. I'm going to keep, you know inviting people that, that work for me, and even though they've never come, right? Like, listen, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep going. Because Austin needs Jesus. Amen? Amen. If we can't get on board with that, I don't know what to get on board with, because it's the gospel, and it's the Great Commission. It's what he told us to do. And all the other stuff, the good stuff, discipleship and and... Worship and Sundays and community, all those things are great. But at the end of the day, that's not why we started this church. So you guys will pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done and are doing in our church. God, thank you for those we, we have seen life transformation in. Lord, I pray that if we have been ashamed, if we've been fearful 
God, I pray that we would just realize the importance of what you've called us to do as believers. And to see people through that lens, Lord, that they're not just some person, they're a person that you love enough to die for. Lord, I pray that you would remind every single person here today of the sweetness of the gospel, Lord. Not the religiousness of church, but just how good you are, Jesus. Would we fall in love with you again? Lord, because this isn't a chore. This is supposed to be life. Life that we are experiencing and therefore we want others to experience. So if people here today are feeling distant from you, if they're feeling far from you, I pray that they would... They would just lean into those promises that you are here and now. You love them, that you want to take care of them no matter what is going on. You want to be there for them as a comforter and a healer. Physically and spiritually, Lord, maybe there's physical ailments that need to be healed. But, Lord, there are probably a lot of spiritual hurt. There's a lot of spiritual um, doubt. There's a lot of things going on in all of our minds and our hearts that need some comfort and healing right now. Lord, I pray that you would pour your spirit upon us as we are worshiping these last couple songs. God, that you would would work in us. Remind us of how good you are. Not the chore of evangelism, but the life of the gospel, Lord. When we really let that sink into our own hearts, it becomes a lot easier to share with others. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Oh,